I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. It's Thursday, February 10th, 2022, the 386th day of dystopia. Before we get started, I just want to thank everybody out there for continuing to share the show. The numbers are going up, and obviously I understand that having Cash Patel on and then having Dave from the X-22 report on exposes the show to a lot of new listeners. But even after that, it is still climbing. And I know that that's because people are sharing the show. So thank you so much. That is the single best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to support in other ways, you can support financially by going to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator, ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. You can follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day by downloading the Telegram app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator and following the channel. You can get to my writing at I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or you can go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Now I've been starting the last couple shows illustrating how the COVID narrative is continuing to break down. The narrative is unrecoverable for the communists at this point. The belief in any of this is fading away. People are starting to understand that not only are they being lied to right now, they've been lied to the entire time. And Jen Psaki tried to make up for this a bit from the White House press room the other day. And I want to play some of that. We had another state today uh, dropping the indoor mask mandate as the CDC is confirming that their guidance is not changing. Um, but these decisions that are being made at the local level, like you guys always talk about, are out of step with the science that is at the forefront of the CDC, of this White House. So why are we not hearing the same messaging, criticizing states that are you know, making these moves like we heard previously um, with, for instance, Ron DeSantis? Well, I would say there is a distinct difference between standing in the way, uh, which Ron DeSantis did, or Governor DeSantis, I'll, I'll give him his full title, um, of teachers, uh, school administrators, and others taking steps to protect the students and their school communities. There's a difference between standing in the way of it, threatening to pull back funding, and allowing for local school districts to make choices, which is what a number of these states are doing. Now, let's be clear on what they're talking about. They're talking about masking school children and making adults wear masks in indoor spaces. Five of the Communist governors from around the country scaled back some of their mitigation techniques, their rules and regulations, 
at the beginning of this week, but they have not rescinded their emergency orders. Okay, that is the part they really want to hold on to. That's what gives them the ability to do all sorts of extra constitutional things that they normally wouldn't be able to do otherwise. The real progress will be when they give up their emergency powers. But people in those states are not going to push for that. They are going to take their small reward and be happy. And I'm not saying the America first people in those states are going to feel that way. People who are paying attention will know that this stuff is not a big deal and that they're actually only loosening their grip just slightly. There should be no mitigation techniques anywhere for any reason at all. Okay. Florida has been open nearly the entire time. South Dakota just was open the entire time. Georgia has been open. Texas has been open. All sorts of states have been open. Texas got rid of their mask mandate almost a year ago. And what happened? Absolutely nothing. There was no unusual spike in Texas. There was no surge. There was no downside from having let masks go because masks provide no upside. Masks don't stop the transmission of an aerosolized virus, and they never did. And science never suggested they could. It was just control. It was always only control. So Jen Psaki is actually advocating for the continued abuse of children. We know masks are unhealthy and trap bacteria on their faces all day long. We know that masks stunt children's growth, both mentally and emotionally, and of course, psychologically, hand in hand. It stunts their ability to socialize. It stunts their ability to understand their peers. It stunts their ability to be able to develop proper speech. But Jen Psaki still wants places to have the option to abuse their children. And she's mad that Ron DeSantis tried to make it impossible for these schools to continue abusing the children. And she's actually drawing a moral distinction there. She's saying that these state governors allowing people to make the choices Well, that's morally better than Ron DeSantis saying, no, you're not allowed to make that choice because the choice you're making is to abuse children. And what could be more obvious? And implicit in all that, the communist governors are saying the science has changed. And we've shown Leanna Wen trying to push out the narrative to say that the science has changed. The science has evolved. We have less cases now, so we shouldn't look at cases at all. But having less cases is what proves that the science has changed. And of course, none of what she says is the science. There is no the science behind masking. It just doesn't work. You don't need to know anything beyond that. Mask mandates have not worked anywhere in the world, anywhere they've been tried. There were countries all over the world with stricter COVID regulations than anything in the United States. And some of those countries had even worse results than we did. Sweden imposed virtually no restrictions on their society, and they had better results than we did without forcing their citizens to suffer. Masks can't work. There is no physical property about masks that allows them to work. Okay, you're like, yeah, but it could cover droplets of saliva that fly out of the mouth when someone sneezes. Yeah, so can your hand. 
Okay. So during the rare instances, you find yourself sneezing and also not sick with the coronavirus. Simply cover your mouth. Problem solved, isn't it? Does the mask prevent more of your droplets from going out than covering your mouth? Of course not. There is no way for masks to work. And indeed, they have not worked. There is no study that shows they have worked. Even the CDC's own study that the media found and referred to as having worked did not show that masks worked. That's how little people care about the actual data, the actual evidence, and the actual science. So all of these states are trying to get ahead of their narratives by making it seem like they are following the science and relaxing restrictions while maintaining their emergency powers. But this is not the time to declare victory on those grounds and just accept what they're doing. What they did was wrong the whole time. The science has not changed. They are still guilty and accountable and responsible for what they have done. And what they have done is a crime against humanity. And we need to keep that in mind while we relax in our views because they're not pressing the boot down on our necks quite so hard. This is from Just the News today. COVID pivot. Dems do 180 on pandemic response. Attempt to rewrite history. Aaron Kliegman in Just the News. With the midterm elections in sight, President Biden and fellow Democrats in Congress and governor's mansions nationwide are completing a 180 on their COVID-19 response, abandoning the president's promise to shut down the virus as Americans say they want to get on with their lives. In the process, Democrats have begun to lift key COVID-19 restrictions and return to normal life. The same approach long embraced by red states that they once rebuked as cruel and dangerous. Yet Biden and his Democratic allies are now taking credit for ending the pandemic while adopting these same policies. On Wednesday, New York Governor Kathy Hochul and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, both Democrats, one of them not elected, the other one a mound of corrupt human flesh, announced they will end mandates in their states requiring face coverings in most indoor public settings. However, masking rules for schools will still remain in place. Several other blue states, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, Oregon, and California, are also lifting their indoor masking requirements in the coming days. All but California said they'll no longer require masking in schools. California, Los Angeles at least, is planning to keep their mask regulations in place because we wouldn't want the celebrities having a meltdown online and then destroying the whole narrative for all of the communists. They have too much public influence. So you better keep those useful idiots in their cage. The decisions by Democratic governors to ease COVID-19 restrictions come amid a larger push by the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress to contain rather than defeat the pandemic and prepare the country to live with it. We are moving toward a time when COVID won't disrupt our daily lives, a time when COVID won't be a constant crisis. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Wednesday, adding the president is looking to turn the page on the pandemic. Isn't that interesting that the country is entering a time, even though all the states, all the red states entered that time a year ago or never entered the other time in the first place? The science is so different in the communist states. We are internally discussing, of course, what it looks like to be in the phase of the fight against the COVID pandemic, where it is not disrupting everyone's daily lives, where people are moving on and living, 
lives free of hopefully masks at some point and many of the restrictions that we've all been living through over the past two years, Psaki said. Her comments came after Politico reported the Biden administration is plotting to adapt to a new normal and condition Americans to live with COVID-19 in a bid to increase his low approval ratings and, quote, boost Democrats midterm prospects amid soaring inflation and a stalled legislative agenda. And Barack Obama is actually speaking in front of Congress today. They have brought Obama out to lay the hammer down. It's like dad's home. Your drunk uncle is asleep in the bathroom again. So you need to bring King Communist down to tell people what's what. But in order to get people to view the pandemic differently, they have to feel differently about the pandemic, said one senior administration official, echoing a belief among at least some on Biden's team that Americans are living in fear and are pessimistic about returning to their normal lives. Again, they live in a bubble. I say this over and over and over again. I don't know if people accept it or believe it. They think these people are far more competent and intelligent than they are. They're not. These people are actually stupid. Okay. None of them. You can look. None of them have actually ever accomplished anything. Yes, they get good grades in school. That's all set up for them. They get pushed into a college through nepotism. They get good grades in that college because you got to give them good grades. I mean, they wrote that amazing paper on gender theory in Beyonce's music. <laughs> Give that person a doctorate. And then they get jobs through nepotism, serving the global communist state and the global communist agenda. And they all filter through the same colleges into the same companies and then into government. These people aren't smart. They believe that the 20% of people who still support Joe Biden represent virtually all of the country, except for those crazy QAnon people and the conspiracy theorists and the white supremacists. That's how they divide everything. You either agree with them or you're all those things. And they have been extremely confused on how many people actually agree with them. Turns out it's not really anybody, but they're still going to go full speed ahead, believing that the problem in America is that people are legitimately still scared of COVID just because they're still scared of COVID, except they're scared of COVID because they are morons who haven't bothered once in the last two years to figure out whether or not they might be wrong. The belief appears to be out of touch with the pulse of the American people. 70% of whom agree COVID is here to stay and we just need to get on with our lives, according to recent polling. Still, the White House may find it difficult to explain to Americans why it's fine for them to return to normal now after two years of Biden and other Democrats advocating strict pandemic restrictions. And that's a good point. Why now? What changed? What changed about the science? What changed about the disease? What changed about any of it? They won't tell us. The problem could be worsened by a series of recent embarrassing stories of top Democrat officials making excuses for not wearing masks despite long pushing mask mandates. Did you see Mount Abrams down in Georgia sitting cross legged with like 30 kindergartners all in masks while she was unmasked? Oh, it was because she was reading to them and she was socially distanced, except the picture's the picture. And neither of those things were happening. She just didn't care. She wasn't going to have her face masked. I mean, gosh, there's nothing the world needs more than more of Stacey Abrams face. 
Nonetheless, Biden and Democrats are crediting themselves for ending the pandemic while beginning to look to policies implemented by red states as early as the summer of 2020. Democrats plan to fight COVID is working. Cases are down and vaccines are widely available. Now it's time to give people their lives back. Representative Sean Patrick Maloney from New York tweeted Wednesday with science as our guide. We're ready to start getting back to normal. He just said that it's time for the government to give people their lives back. And naturally, the communist that he is doesn't realize what he's saying. He's saying, yes, we, the powerful, the state, we took your lives for a time and it was for your own good. Yes, you lost your jobs. Yes, we know about drug abuse and suicide and domestic abuse and depression and loneliness. We know about how you couldn't be near your parents when they died. But we were looking out for you while we got rich and more powerful. We're going to give you back your lives now because we are good owners. And you're good pets. Oh, what a good boy. What a good boy. And with science as our guide? I mean, tell me that scientism is a religion without telling me scientism is a religion. There you go. With science as our guide, we're just going to follow the science all the way to the end. And you know what's at the end of the science? Oh, it's a pot of gold. It's heaven on earth. Just wait till Elon Musk gets Neuralink online. We're going to have heaven on earth. What do you think the metaverse is? That is Mark Zuckerberg's promise to the peons that he will make their lives bad enough that they will beg for his fake reality where they can live as the kings they always wish they were. These people are deranged. Another New York Democrat, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, praised Biden as blue states began dropping their mask mandates. Well, here's where we are in America. Job creation is up, wages are up, unemployment is down, and the Omicron variant is in retreat. And that's not by accident, Jeffries said, according to the Daily Caller. That's because under President Biden's leadership, a public health infrastructure was put into place, beginning with the American Rescue Plan without a single Republican vote, to ensure that we can do everything possible to crush the virus. And that is what's happening. Wait a second. Job creation is not up. They falsified the numbers last week to make it look like they're doing a good job. Job creation is stagnant at best. Biden hasn't even brought the economy anywhere close to where Trump had it when he left. And that was after a year of covid wages are not up more than inflation is. And that's not close. Unemployment is down. OK, same numbers. And the Omicron variant isn't in retreat. It's just over. There is nothing, nothing that the public health community has done to aid in any aspect of pandemic response. The public health community, as governed by global communists and corrupt members of the Uniparty, is the problem. They're the people who put all the society destroying mitigation measures in place. 
The result was the destruction of society. They have saved no lives. It doesn't matter if they can model something at the University of Washington or Harvard that says they have. Everybody can see it now. Okay, the greatest killer in the last two years was hospital malpractice. They used faulty tests to treat people for a disease they did not have and could not have died from. And they put them on remdesivir and then a ventilator, thereby killing them. And the vaccine is bad for you as well. The vaccine hasn't saved lives either. In fact, the vaccine is just giving everyone AIDS and that information is coming out every day. What kind of people told you that six months ago? Oh, people like me, the conspiracy theorists. But now it's real. And a bunch of people who could have just listened six months ago instead. Now they have AIDS. How's that work? But I know, I know you're a fact guy. You only listen to the proper authorities. You want authoritative information from an organization like the CDC. Well, congrats, commie. You made the state your parent, and it turns out your parent is an abusive alcoholic. More from Hakeem Jeffries. When President Biden took office, there were 2 million Americans vaccinated, Jeffries continued. One year later, 200 million Americans are fully vaccinated. That doesn't happen by accident. No, you're right, Hakeem. That happens by force. It's because President Biden and the Democrats in the House and the Senate have leaned into the science, to the evidence, to standing up a robust public health infrastructure. And now we are seeing the fruits of that work. Uh, Hey, Hakeem, we remember back two and a half months ago when Omicron first came out and you guys wanted to put all sorts of travel restrictions back in place. We remember that. Why'd you do that? Omicron doesn't even kill anybody. It's just a cold. I had it so I can say that. Thanks. What part of your public health infrastructure gave us such a scientific response as limiting travel and forcing more vaccinations? You're about to try to roll out vaccines to six-month-olds. These people are insane and absolutely, utterly evil. If you cannot see that at this point, I do not know what to tell you. Jeffries failed to note when discussing the number of Americans vaccinated that the Food and Drug Administration didn't grant its first emergency use authorization to a COVID-19 vaccine until December 2020, just one month before President Trump left office. Biden has had the vaccines available to the public throughout his presidency. Biden's new push to portray the pandemic as part of a new normal is in stark contrast to what he said consistently about the pandemic from the 2020 presidential campaign to last month. Biden campaigned on the promise that he was going to shut down the virus, attacking Trump for suggesting Americans should accept COVID-19 as a part of life and adapt accordingly, as opposed to a more heavy handed response. At the final presidential debate in 2020, Trump said the country was, quote, learning to live with the virus. Biden derided Trump for striking an optimistic tone. My response, we're not learning to live with. We're learning to die with it. Biden wrote on his campaign website after the debate. And there is a dark winter ahead. Once in office, Biden pledged one day after his inauguration, we will defeat this pandemic, a message he repeated often over the next year. Prominent Democrats such as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi similarly made clear the goal had to be total victory by eradicating the pandemic. Our most urgent priority will continue to be defeating the coronavirus, she declared, and defeat it we will. 
governors of blue states employed identical rhetoric. Thanks to the dedication of hardworking New Yorkers, we continue to make progress every day in defeating the COVID beast once and for all, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said last year. When discussing their response to the virus, Democratic leaders frequently spoke of the pandemic as a battlefield, and the war could only be won with COVID-19's unconditional surrender. As a result, several blue states kept in place COVID-19 lockdown measures, first implemented nationwide in the spring of 2020, long after red states, which opened up much earlier, most notably Florida. It seems like the narrative was no one could talk about individual rights. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis told the conservative legal group, the Federalist Society on Friday, it's all about lockdown. You can't have an open state. You can't have kids in school. You can't do all that. We viewed it the opposite. The default needs to be freedom. In large part due to loosening pandemic restrictions, states led by Republican governors are overwhelmingly leading the economic recovery, according to data from the Federal Reserve and the Labor Department. States led by Democratic governors have been lagging behind with steeper job losses and higher unemployment. So, hey, Hakeem Jeffries, the only reason the numbers aren't much worse than they are is that red states don't follow the communist agenda. The communist agenda is not what has saved us. It is what we need to save ourselves from. However, the record when it comes to death rates from COVID-19 is more mixed. Deep Red Mississippi, for example, leads the nation in deaths per 100,000 people, while Deep Blue New Jersey ranks third. And assuming these numbers are true, which we absolutely, absolutely cannot do because we know that they drove up the cases with faulty tests, with public testing programs, et cetera, et cetera. And that sort of thing can make your death rate look lower, although they also inflated the death rates as well. So these numbers are wholly untrustable. And of course, there are plenty of other demographic and environmental factors involved. After the lockdown measures eased up, even in blue states, Democrats pushed to continue mask and COVID-19 vaccine mandates, castigating Republicans for resisting. They, quote, are passing laws and signing orders that forbid people from doing the right thing. Biden said last summer of DeSantis, Texas Governor Greg Abbott and other Republican governors who oppose such measures. If you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way. This week, however, the White House is signaling it intends to follow blue states easing restrictions and embrace a new posture toward the pandemic. Biden and fellow Democrats say it's due to reductions in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. But critics argue the pivot is based in politics, not science. The data did not change. You guys changed. Conservative pundit Ben Shapiro said this week, referring to Democrats. This is all about trust us. Give us the power and we will protect you. And I don't think I need to rehash how cucked. Ben Shapiro is in terms of COVID, election fraud, and everything else that matters. Imagine being Ben Shapiro right now and thinking that your philosophy, your allegiances are all ascendant and then having MAGA roll right back over you a second time. That's what's going to happen, Ben. No one is interested in your establishment rhino nonsense. And there's another great article on the COVID hypocrisy, but it's too long to go through. It's on Zero Hedge. The headline is COVID conspiracy theories have now magically become fact checked mainstream narrative. Now, today in the group chat, the podcast chat channel on Telegram, and if you haven't gone there, there's honestly like some really great, really brilliant members of that chat who 
engage in really productive conversations all day. And I end up learning a lot. So if that's your thing, go check it out. But one of the members today who goes by Captain Stan, brilliant guy, veteran, just an asset to the group. He posted an article about a potential constitutional convention, a convention of states. And so I want to read that article and then give some other context and then discuss that because I think that this is a really interesting idea, generally speaking, but I also think that it is a 100% trap as it's being presented now, and I think it's worth pointing out. So this is originally from the Associated Press, but it's up on Yahoo. Convention of States push hits halfway mark with Nebraska. This is Grant Schulte, and this article is actually from two weeks ago, January 28th, 2022. Nebraska on Friday became the 17th state to call for a convention of states to consider making changes to the U.S. Constitution, putting supporters halfway to their goal of getting the 34 states needed to trigger a convention. Nebraska lawmakers gave the measure final approval with a 32 to 10 vote just three days after Wisconsin passed a similar proposal. The 17 states that have passed them so far are generally Republican led and heavily concentrated in the South. In eight other states, the measure has advanced through at least one legislative chamber. The Convention of States movement has ties to the Tea Party movement and is endorsed by many prominent conservatives. Opponents have raised concerns about a runaway convention that could lead to drastic changes to the nation's founding document and the freedoms it protects. The measure's sponsor, State Senator Steve Halloran, said he pushed for it out of concern for the growing national debt under presidents from both parties. He said he has heard strong support from constituents in his central Nebraska district and around the state. Functionally, the founding fathers intended for the states to have equal footing with Congress, said Halloran of Hastings. To me, that's important. I think it's a state sovereignty issue. Like other states' resolutions, Nebraska's call seeks to impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the federal government's power and jurisdiction, and impose term limits on Congress. The Nebraska measure passed after supporters agreed to a five-year sunset, letting the measure expire in February 2027. Backers also had to come up with 33 votes to overcome a legislative filibuster from opponents. Because the measure is a resolution and not a bill, it doesn't require approval from Governor Pete Ricketts, although the Republican governor has voiced support for it in the past. Some lawmakers argue that the convention would widen the nation's political divisions and could ultimately backfire on Nebraska, leading to changes that hurt the state. How will they balance the budget? Will they go after farm programs first? Asked Senator Steve Lathrop of Omaha. Senator Megan Hunt of Omaha said she was concerned that special interest groups would try to influence the process and argued that lawmakers should focus more on protecting voting rights. We have a good democracy if we can keep it, if we can protect it, she said. And then there's this from The Hill on December 8th of last year. Conservatives prepare new push for constitutional convention. Conservative lawmakers will mount a new push to call a constitutional convention aimed at creating a balanced budget amendment and establishing term limits for members of Congress in an effort to rein in what they see as a runaway federal government. State legislators meeting at the American Legislative Exchange Council's policy conference here last week hope to use Article 5 of the Constitution, which allows state legislatures to call a convention to propose new amendments and American Legislative Exchange Council. That's ALEC. It's really the last line of defense that we have. Right now, the federal government's run away. They're not going to pull their own power back. 
They're not going to restrict themselves. And so this Article 5 convention is really, in my opinion, the last option that we have, said Iowa State Representative John Wills, the state's House Speaker pro tempore, who backs the convention. At least two thirds of the states must pass a call to force a convention. So far, 15 states have passed the model legislation proposed by ALEC, a conservative group that backs free markets and states' rights. And it backs so many other things, too. Should we just trust ALEC? No. And of course, a few weeks later, we now know the number is up to 17 states. Bills have passed at least one legislative chamber in another nine states, and bills have been introduced in 17 more states. The 15 states that have passed measures so far all have Republican-controlled legislatures and Republican governors. Another nine states totally controlled by the GOP have yet to finalize passage, according to Convention of States Action, a project of the conservative group Citizens for Self-Governance. Once a sufficient number of states have approved the call to a convention, Congress gets to set the initial rules. Article 5 says any proposed amendments would have to be ratified by three-quarters of the states to take effect. It's a very high bar, very difficult to do, said Stuart Adams, the president of the Utah State Senate and Alex chairman. But like many provisions in the Constitution, Article 5 leaves much open to interpretation. Nothing in its 143 words describes the process by which a convention would be run or the delegates who would meet and vote on potential amendments. The founding documents requirement that any new amendments be ratified by three quarters of states was a requirement the last constitutional convention ignored. Congress can purport to make whatever rules it wants for the convention. The convention can then throw them in the trash, which is certainly what the convention in Philadelphia did in 1787, said David Super, a constitutional law expert at Georgetown Law. There's no guarantee that they will follow the ratification procedures. The only precedent we do have they didn't follow the ratification procedures. It is not even clear that state calls for a constitutional convention must be limited to narrow or specific topics. While the ALEC draft legislation mentions a balanced budget amendment and term limits, others have issued calls for a convention meant to tackle limits on Congress's ability to levy taxes or gun control or rolling back the right to abortion. Along with 15 Republican-led states that have approved ALEC's model, legislation, another five Democrat-led states, Vermont, California, Illinois, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, have approved calls for a convention focused on campaign finance reform. The group behind that proposal, called Wolfpack, was founded a decade ago by the progressive commentator Cenk Uger. What we're seeing is they're kind of putting all these applications into one basket, said Rebecca Timmons, a communications coordinator at Common Cause, which opposes the Article 5 convention. There are no guardrails. Over the course of the nation's history, every state except Hawaii has passed legislation calling for a constitutional convention, albeit on different grounds. States had submitted more than 700 calls for conventions through 2010, according to a database maintained by Friends of the Article 5 Convention, a supportive group. A 2010 report by the Congressional Research Service laid out the few occasions in modern history in which states have come close to forcing a convention. In the late 1960s, a push to reform legislative apportionment gained 33 petitions, just one short of the 34 necessary to force a convention. The first push for a balanced budget amendment earned support from 32 states in the 1980s, too short of the necessary mark. Supporters of the Article 5 convention say they are not concerned about a runaway circus in which topics far afield from the planned agenda dominate the discussion. If a convention passed an amendment outlawing abortion or the Second Amendment or anything similarly divisive, legislatures in many states would not give final approval, Will said. 
I don't know anything is set in stone. I'd like to see a well-rounded convention. I'd like to see us tackle the problems in general. With one fell swoop, Will said in an interview. Let's just tackle the problems that we have now and be done with it versus, you know, trying to deal with it into the future. But there is no guaranteed time frame under which states would have to act on proposed amendments. Anything that might emerge from a convention could potentially lie dormant until one party sweeps to power. It's going to be hanging over the country for the rest of time, waiting for a wave election to give them control over enough states, Super said. The only rules are sitting there in Article 5. Now, I had a few thoughts in response to this that I shared with Captain Stan and the board, and we had a good discussion about it. The first of those is that this is not a bottom-up people's movement, okay? The America First agenda is not pushing for this. America First voters, which are the majority of America at this point, are not pushing for this. Advocacy groups are pushing for this. And while the idea is that we would be using elements of the Constitution to fix an obviously broken system, it still kind of says that the problems lie within the Constitution and not the fact that we are not abiding by the Constitution. Abiding by the Constitution is the goal. If we all actually had the proper reverence for that document, we wouldn't find ourselves in the situation we find ourselves in. We can actually fix all of this by staying within the system. And that is what the point of the movement actually is. That is the number one goal. Okay. Now, they're saying that a lot of this is initiated by Republican states with Republican governors and Republican state legislatures. All right. But as you heard, California and Vermont and Illinois and a bunch of communist states are in there too. So they must have something they believe they can get out of it. Now, I don't trust, and I don't think anyone else should trust, the designation of Republican governor or Republican state legislature, okay? And I think that we have now a year and a half of proof as to why those people are entirely untrustworthy. We know for a fact that Democrats are sought out by PR organizations who signed them up to run as Republicans. This is how we get Brad Raffensperger and Jordy Fuchs in Georgia, for instance. And it happens in other states as well. That is what a rhino is. They go out and find a fake Republican to run with an R next to their name and serve the global communist agenda. And we have that infiltrated all across the country in state legislatures and obviously in the U.S. Congress and Senate. And look at what the states are doing right now. The state legislatures. Okay. Arizona was able to push through an audit. That's good. It seems like they might be able to push some election integrity measures through. That's good. Fine. That doesn't fix 2020. But at least we know there are some people in the Arizona legislature who are doing the right thing. Same thing in Wisconsin. There's a few in Pennsylvania, a few in Georgia, but those state legislatures are not getting this job done. Pennsylvania has been an absolute slog, roadblocks the entire way, often by Republicans. Wisconsin is the same thing. They have a resolution to decertify that Republicans in the state legislature in Wisconsin are holding up. 
Georgia is an absolute mess of rhinos. Michigan should be able to get something done in their state legislature, but they will not. This is because these people are captured by the global communist agenda. They are either corrupt or compromised. They are not sticking up for American values and they are not standing up for free elections. So why in the world would I trust them to go to a constitutional convention where they intend to change the constitution on their own behalf? And it's not that I'm not for a balanced budget amendment or term limits on members of Congress. Those are great things. That's fine. There are ways to implement that that do not require handing our power over to state legislatures that we know are corrupt and compromised and expecting them to fix the Constitution in a way that's just going to work for everyone. We're just going to handle all these problems in one fell swoop. That's what you heard him say. So this is top down motivation for a top down solution to the problems created by these very same people. All right. I don't want any part of that. And I don't think anybody else should either. But hey, you make your own choices. But here's the real problem. Okay. And Captain Stan was like, well, yeah, but how are we going to fix all this stuff? And I responded, fixing the 2020 election fixes all this stuff. Okay. Right now, the decertifications are for the electors in each state because they sent fraudulent electors to place Joe Biden in the office of fake president. Now, that's a problem for sure. But that is a problem that needs to be dealt with in those states. And then they'll draw back the electors. Everybody by that time will know, obviously, that the election was a complete and total sham. And my hope is that we get a new election where we know our votes are secure on identifiable paper. And Donald Trump would absolutely demolish Joe Biden as he did in the fall of 2020. It would probably be an extra 20 million votes moving over, maybe more since then. But it's important to note that these initiatives that are being taken by state legislatures would only affect that presidential election on the basis of drawing back those electors. The problem is that the presidential election is not the only place that fraud occurred. Fraud occurred in 3000 counties in the United States. So there may be members of state legislatures and Congress and local governments who are serving legitimately, but there's no reason to assume that any of them are. And that is probably why they're so hesitant to actually sign up for the audit and the election integrity measures and to fix 2020 because they themselves are illegitimate. Okay. It's not just about Trump and Biden. It's never been about just Trump and Biden. I was saying in December of 2020 and January of 2021 that I believe, fully believe that every single person who did not stand up and object to the overwhelming and obvious evidence of election fraud should be considered suspect at best and treasonous at worst. Okay. 
it was obvious by then that something was gravely wrong with the election. And there was already overwhelming evidence of that. Just because the media ignored it, just because the child brains communists ignored it, doesn't mean that all those politicians didn't know the truth. They knew the truth. They went forward with it anyway. What does that tell you about them and about their character? Now, there was a handful of Republicans who decided to object. Some of them backed out at the last minute, like Kelly Leffler. The only senators who objected were Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Cindy Hyde-Smith, Cynthia Loomis, John Kennedy, Roger Marshall, Rick Scott, and Tommy Tuberville. And there was something like 60 members of Congress on the Republican side who objected. Anyone who is not on those lists should be considered suspect or worse. And I would not for one second want any of these people deciding my future. Okay. If you can't look at what happened leading up to the election on election day, the vote spikes in the middle of the night, just rampant videos and evidence, thousands of affidavits all over the country speaking directly to election fraud. None of it taken seriously, all of it covered up, all of it ignored. If you know all of that and you still confirm that Joe Biden's electors are legitimate, I don't trust you at all. Okay. So when the election of 2020 is fixed, each and every one of those people need to be put out of office. And that includes at the state level and the local level, everybody, all the elections in 2020, anyone sitting in office 2020 or prior should immediately be up for re-election in a new election. And at that point, we can actually know that the people sitting in positions of power are there legitimately because there is no reason whatsoever to believe that they are legitimate now. And knowing that they participated in and covered up a fraudulent national election, why would you believe that they didn't rig their own primaries? We know that's true. We have a pretty good idea that that's what Hillary Clinton did to Bernie Sanders. And he took his payoff and they told him they gave him a little pat on the head. Okay, commie, we'll give you a leadership position in the Senate and we're going to give you a bunch of money. And you can say it's because so many people bought your book. You love capitalism when people are buying your book. Here's three houses, Bernie. Look at this. Now you live in luxury just from having supported communism your entire life. You have supported the communist state so well that now you will be rewarded. This is your heaven on earth, you soulless communist. And Bernie said, oh, thank you. And still, from his leadership position, he has accomplished absolutely nothing. So my point here is, fixing the 2020 election means exposing to the entire country that the election was a total and complete fraud, right down to the local level. And once we know that, well, then we can have new elections where everybody has their eyes open and knows what happened and can actually listen to the candidates and their constituents can ask them questions like, hey, it seems like you must have known about this election fraud. Why didn't you do anything? How many of the candidates currently sitting in office would go back to their districts and listen to questions like that and try to answer them? Those people are going to get run over. 
they're not going to get back in office. So we don't need a constitutional convention. We need legitimate people in government representing their constituents. And then I am fine to let the chips fall where they may. I want free and fair elections. One person, one vote for every office in the country. And I don't want anyone who hasn't gone through that system representing anyone. Look at what we have just dealt with for the last two years. And truthfully, the last four or five or six decades, the country is $30 trillion in debt. Who did that? You didn't choose that. I didn't choose that. Oh, the people we voted for chose it. Well, how do we know? The people who are actually pulling the strings in the global communist agenda have no desire to allow us to make the choices about who represents us. They've been choosing those people for us, and they've been doing it for a long time. Don't you wonder how Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell stays in office or Nancy Pelosi or Maxine Waters or Chuck Schumer? Do you think that these people are just loved in their districts? They go back home and all of their supporters are like, thank you, Chuck Schumer. You are the greatest senator ever. Of course not. But he's still the leader of the Democrat Communist Party in the Senate. How does that work? Why does that happen? That's influence. That's corruption. That's compromise. That's power. And that's not the sort of thing that we can fix through a constitutional convention. Fine. Balanced budget amendment. Great. Then what happens? The only way to fix anything in one fell swoop is to make sure the entire country knows the truth of what I just told you, that the people serving us in government at all levels are illegitimate. Maybe not every one of them. I am totally fine with that. Okay. But by the way, I don't even think new elections would hurt those people. You think about the people who have been fighting to fix 2020 this year. Mark Fincham would get elected on his own. Tim Ramthan would get elected on his own. Those people are in no danger of losing their office. And I imagine the senators and congressmen who stood up against election fraud and objected to the fraudulent electors, I imagine they'd all be fine too. But after what has been done to this country by these people, no half measures, okay? All of them need to be gone. The ones who were involved in perpetrating that fraud should be tried for, at minimum, election fraud crimes and at maximum treason because they did coordinate with foreign countries. You think Nancy Pelosi doesn't know anything about how elections are run in her district in San Francisco? You don't think she's part of that? Even her son is corrupt. Nancy Pelosi exists to vacuum up Chinese power and money. What are we supposed to call that? It's not just simple election fraud. It's far worse than that. And she's the third most powerful member of America's illegitimate government. Her father was a legitimate communist, just a real dyed-in-the-wool communist who used to speak at Communist Party meetings. And he was also in the mafia. But hey, no big deal. She's probably just really there to represent her district. She's probably getting really voted back into office by them too, where they have open primaries, 
where Nancy can go up against another Democrat in the fall. And so all of the child brains in the Democrat Communist Party go and vote Nancy Pelosi back into office against the other Democrat they've never heard of. Ooh, Nancy, she's such a powerful woman. We got to put her back in office. She literally doesn't even have to debate or be challenged to win election. She just goes back in over and over and over again because she helped destroy California's electoral system. So I get the motivation to want to really change the system in a way that would make it better. I do not think for one second that this is the way. Switching subjects without a segue. This is from The Federalist today. Loomis, we just mentioned Cynthia Loomis. Biden Fed nominee raked up $1.5 million from startup she pulled strings for. And this is Cynthia Loomis writing this op-ed for The Federalist. As a longtime legislator, I know that nothing frustrates the people of Wyoming and the rest of the country as much as when connected people in Washington, D.C. use their public service to profit handsomely in the private sector. Right now, the Senate is considering a nominee whose background looks like the dictionary definition of what we call the revolving door. The revolving door is a term we use when a politician or bureaucrat works for the government, then goes to the private sector and cashes out by using their connections and influence to make huge amounts of money in a way that no ordinary American could. This nominee is Sarah Bloom Raskin. And yes, she is the wife of Friar Cuck, Jamie Raskin. The nominee is Sarah Bloom Raskin. During the Obama administration, Raskin worked at the Federal Reserve and the Department of Treasury before leaving Treasury in 2017. Four months after she left government service, she joined the board of a Colorado-based trust company called Reserve Trust. Reserve Trust is a non-bank financial technology fintech startup that was seeking access to the Federal Reserve's payment system through what is called a master account. Master accounts are almost exclusively limited to depository institutions, and it's unheard of for a non-systemically important trust company to obtain a master account. A fintech non-bank company that has this access, like Reserve Trust does, has an enormous leg up on its competition and is worth a great deal of money to investors. Having the master account isn't the concerning part in and of itself, although trust companies often have far less capital and supervision than a bank. This is why Wyoming created the Special Purpose Depository Institution to bring digital assets fully into the U.S. banking system under more rigorous standards. And let's leave that aside for now. The concerning part is the series of events that led to Reserve Trust securing their master account. In June 2017, the Fed denied Reserve Trust access to the Fed's banking system. Around the same time, Raskin joined the board of directors of Reserve Trust. Raskin used her connections and influence and called the Fed about Reserve Trust denied application. One year later, in 2018, the Fed reversed course and granted this non-bank entity access to its banking system. These facts are not in dispute. I'd like more fintech companies that are depository institutions to have access to the Fed's payment system. Right now, Wyoming has two SPDI banks applying for master accounts, Kraken and Avanti. The Fed has dragged its feet on these applications for more than a year, even though both banks are under federal and Wyoming law, and both have gone above and beyond to meet and exceed the Fed's rigorous standards. What's the difference? Why did a non-bank company get access when two chartered banks have been delayed? Could it be Raskin's revolving door influence? The story gets more concerning from here. 
Reserve Trust gave Raskin stock in the company for her service on its board. In 2020, she sold her company stock for nearly $1.5 million. The average annual reimbursement for serving on a bank's board is far less than this. Even by Washington, D.C. standards, $1.5 million for service on a company's board is a serious windfall of cash. Raskin swears her actions were above board, and the White House attacked me personally for even asking these questions. But this whole situation doesn't smell right to me, and I think the average American would agree. The White House doesn't appear to have all the facts about its own nominee. I'm working with Senator Pat Toomey to get to the bottom of this situation. Public service is a trust and one that all officials should treat with the utmost respect. The federal government was created by the people to serve the people, not line the pockets of unelected bureaucrats. I know this frustrates the people of Wyoming, and I'll keep fighting it wherever I see it. So it's good that she's calling that out. But think about what it means that Biden is nominating this lady in the first place. The revolving door doesn't even satisfy what this is. Okay. This is favor trading. This is moving in and out of government positions in order to execute a certain agenda for certain people by abusing power and then taking a payoff. Jamie Raskin is one of the more powerful members of the Democrat Communist Party in Congress. He led both of the fake impeachment investigations, and he still is out there on television whining every day about January 6th, the very violent insurrection. He was literally showing John Sullivan's videos in the second impeachment hoax, the one about the very violent insurrection, the one that happened after Donald Trump was no longer president. Jamie Raskin is almost on Adam Schiff's level in terms of betraying the country and committing crimes against America. And his wife is being given this position. Is it part of Jamie's reward or is it part of hers? It's impossible to know. And then there's this today in the National Pulse. The writer is K. Christopher Powell. And just a warning here, this section is not appropriate for kids. So if you got kids in the car, listen to it later or skip ahead like, I don't know, five, six, seven minutes, whatever. But trust me, you don't need them hearing this. New Biden nuclear hire is drag queen who wears stilettos to work, discusses sex with animals and calls NIH chief Daddy Fauci. A recent high level hire at the Department of Energy's Office of Nuclear Energy is a drag queen LGBTQ plus activist who has lectured on kink at college campuses and participated in interviews about fetish role play. In one interview, Sam Brinton, now a top Biden official, even discusses having sex with animals. Brinton, who has written in opposition to gay conversion therapy, was recently tapped to serve as the deputy assistant secretary of spent fuel and waste disposition in the office of nuclear energy for the department of energy. He also goes by sister Ray D O active. His drag queen alter ego. Get it? <laughs> Radioactive. It's a nuclear joke. In his own website's bio, Brinton reveals Sam has worn his stilettos to Congress to advise legislators about nuclear policy and to the White House, where he advised President Obama and Michelle Obama on LGBT issues. He shows young men and women everywhere he goes that they can be who they are and gives them courage. Once, while he was walking around Disney World in six-inch stilettos with his boyfriend, a young gay boy saw Sam and his boyfriend and started crying. He told his mother, 
It's true, mom. We can be our own princess here. And since there are no child brains in my audience, I actually have to to let you know that if you were all child brains, you would have realized that immediately as an applause line. You would have stood up and started clapping for Miss Radioactive because his or her courage, her bravery was on display as he or she, I can't tell from this. I'm sorry. I would love to use your correct pronouns, but I can't tell what thing you're going for. Are you a man who's just a drag queen or are you trans sometimes? Don't know. Sorry. Not even trying to be offensive. Just can't understand because your rules make no sense. They're not consistent. No one actually believes any of it. But what bravery, what bravery to go to the happiest place on earth for children where there's so many children and then walk around as a drag queen just to show everybody how normal and safe you are. Brinton is an active member of the Washington, D.C. chapter of a drag queen society known as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which lists him as the principal contact on its 2016 and 2018 tax forms. During the group's Lavender Mass 2021, Brinton can be seen referring to Anthony Fauci, who was declared a saint, as Daddy Fauci. Fauci was widely critiqued for his role in the HIV AIDS crisis in the 1980s, with LGBT rights activists calling him an incompetent idiot and a murderer. And man, things have changed a lot in 40 years. The new Biden-Harris nuclear official has been involved in LGBTQ plus activism since college, was interviewed by Metro Weekly about the group, where he emphasized he is the slutty one. The sister's mission is in complete alignment with my passion for removing the guilt people feel every day, unjustly placed on them, let your freak flag fly. And the joy the sisters bring is so, so, so beautiful, he added. In a separate interview, Brinton explains how he role plays as a pup handler. I actually have trouble when we transition from pup play to having sex, Brinton explained. Like, no, I can't have you whimper like that when we're having sex, because I don't want to mix that world. It's interesting because he doesn't have to come out of pup mode to have me fuck him. Sorry, everybody. Sorry. I personally have to bring him out of pup perception for me, but then I'm still treating him as a submissive to me. In the interview, Brinton also appears to be annoyed with criticism of liking to have sex with animals. One of the hardest things about being a handler is that I've honestly had people ask, wait, you have sex with animals? Sam says. They believe it's abuse, that it's taking advantage of someone who may not be acting up to a level of human responsibility. The other misperception is that I have some really messed up background, like, did I have some horrible childhood trauma that made me like to have sex with animals? Brinton has also lectured on kink at college campuses, including a class for the University of Wisconsin Stout Gender and Sexuality Alliance on the Physics of Kink on March 7th, 2018. A description on Instagram said the session was to include, quote, live demos on the tension forces of bondage, thermodynamics of wax play, physics of impact, and circuits of electro play. Brinton led a Kink 101 session at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. 
The photo shows Brinton in a dress standing over three kneeling males with leather bondage style dog masks on their heads. He previously worked with the Obama White House on LGBTQ plus issues, as well as Congress on nuclear policy. Now, I am not doing this segment to judge a person's life decisions, okay? But it's not about your life decisions when you get put into positions of public trust. This is some really out there stuff. He's going to advise Barack and Michelle on LGBTQ issues. I feel like they already know about that. But what in the world is the Biden administration doing? I mean, you know, fine. Everything they do is incompetent and ridiculous. But this is like going above and beyond. Putting Richard Levine as the public health person, the first female four-star admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service. Or is it the first trans admiral in the public health service? Or does she just get both? These people operate all systems as if the point was to be an influencer on Instagram. Okay. They're trying to present an image and that's all that matters because they're not just trying to change government. They're trying to change culture. They're trying to erode culture to the point where we look to the state for everything. There is no reality. There is no moral center or moral core any longer. There is only the image they project and the image they project is one where we all should embrace degeneracy. They are literally, literally paying for crack pipes for drug addicts. And I get the conversation. I get that there is a conversation in the treatment community about whether or not it is cruel to just take people off the drugs. Maybe you can wean them off gradually, allowing them to do drugs in a supervised environment. But that's not some scientific truth that we just have to abide while Joe Biden is handing out crack pipes, literally crack pipes. I'm not making this up. His son has pictures with crack pipes and he's giving out crack pipes during Black History Month because he cares about racial equality. That is literally the explanation. The man who was mentored in politics by a former grand, legal, and exalted cyclops of the KKK. That's Joe Biden. The man who wrote the crime bills that impose mandatory minimum sentences for people convicted of minor drug crimes. That's Joe Biden. The man with the crackhead for the sun. That's Joe Biden. The man who said, if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. That's Joe Biden. The same guy is now giving out crack pipes to solve racism for racial equality and all the child brains will go out there and defend it and they will defend the drag queen animal lover holding a position of power in the energy department and why are they defending them well because oh it's, it's not their position to judge anybody can just do whatever they want well Okay, child brain, if that's how you feel, great. But you're not allowed to make public policy if that's what you think. They will defend anything 
that they understand is on the other side of what their enemies believe. Okay. So, and I'm not claiming this and I'm not claiming it for the side. I'm not claiming it for myself or the side. Okay. But let's say as a philosophical experiment that one side represented pure, perfect moral good, right? Again, not claiming it, just saying it. That should be our ideal society, right? And yes, naturally, I understand that there are variations in moral realities and moral truths, okay? You can leave that aside because it's not relevant to this discussion. So let's say one side represents moral perfection or a striving toward moral perfection. Right now, we have this division and people pretend that it's half and half. It's not half and half. And people pretend that it's Republican and Democrat. It's not that either. Okay. There is a small portion of this country that has absolutely no morality whatsoever. They care about power and public image, right? Party of false decorum, incompetence and narcissism. They succeed in life by gaining power from the approval of people that they see as above them. Okay. So on the other side of that sits the party striving for a morally perfect world, a morally better world. We can even turn the volume down on that quite a distance. They are in direct opposition to every single thing that side wants, and they don't care what they have to rationalize and justify to make sure that they are always ever in opposition to what that side wants. We want election integrity. So we want voter ID, just like 80% of the country does, including 80% of black Americans. But they have to oppose that because we want that. They don't bother to understand the practical logistical issue involved that it actually does matter to make sure that the person casting a vote is a real person. They don't care about that. What they care about is that the evil people want it. Therefore, we don't. How can we say that something so obviously practically worthwhile is in fact evil? And it must be evil because the other side believes it. So how can we say that? Well, we're going to have to figure out a way that voter ID is racist. That's all they've got. That is their argument against something 80% of the country wants and 80% of black Americans want. They say it's racist because they have to be in opposition to everything and they don't care how far they go, which is why. And by the way, go to that article in National Pulse because they show pictures and you can see who this person is that Joe Biden has nominated to a position of authority in the Department of Energy. And you're like, oh, yeah, the Department of Energy. But that's like seventh on the list of departments. Okay. Yeah, the Department of Energy, that's not an, a hugely important department. And I'm not talking about like they're necessary and we can't eliminate at least part of it or all of it in terms of shrinking the government. We should do all that. Fine. Separate. He's in a policy making and policy influencing position on nuclear energy. And he spends his free time pretending that the physics of dripping hot wax on people and having sex with animals is cute and brave and forward thinking. 
when it's not any of those. If we can't call bestiality degeneracy, then we have lost everything, right? We would only live in a state of permanent moral relativism at that point. And the crazy thing is it's even wrong on their terms of consent and everything else. He literally mentions the argument against it and just laughs like, I can't believe these people are such prudes. So, hey, commies, you hate Trump? Fine. Well, this is what your silence and complicity and listening to the television has brought to all of our lives. This sort of rampant incompetence and degeneracy in the most popular president of all time, whose RCP polling average is now under 40, 81 million real legal American votes. Sure, Kami, sure. Now, I'm sorry that everything is running long today. Whatever. Some of you like it. I feel bad, honestly, going over an hour, but some people are like, no, keep going. Whatever, man. It just is what it is. I'm just, I'm just trying to make a good show. You know, I'm just trying to tell you guys what I think is important. Revolver yesterday, last night, actually. The headline, Revolver investigates disturbing link between the DHS and the domestic war on MAGA. In a move that is Orwellian, even by the current year's dystopian standards, Biden's Department of Homeland Security on Monday issued a heightened terrorist threat assessment centered around online misinformation. This is quoting from the threat assessment. The United States remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis and mal information. They've created a new term, MDM introduced and or amplified by foreign and domestic threat actors. That's right, folks. The Ministry of Truth is officially here under the auspices of the government's cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. That is CISA, the agency Chris Krebs used to run when he said that the 2020 election was the safest and most secure election ever. CISA's mis and dis and malinformation team is charged with building national resilience to mis, dis and malinformation and foreign influence activities. Through these efforts, CISA helps the American people understand the scope and scale of MDM activities targeting elections and critical infrastructure and enables them to take actions to mitigate associated risks. The MDM team was formerly known as the Countering Foreign Influence Task Force. And you should understand all of that to mean that the corrupt and illegitimate government has found another tool at its disposal to try to harm free discourse and people expressing their dissent from the entirely illegitimate and incompetent regime. While the official announcement concedes that there has been no underlying change in threat conditions over the past year, leaving aside the threat the regime poses to the American people, it nonetheless emphasizes the urgent danger of false or misleading narratives, which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. In the land of freedom, democracy, and drag queen supremacy, how fortunate to have a U.S. government national security bureaucracy to warn against the dire national security threat of Americans who more and more do not trust their government. 
The Department of Homeland Security threat assessment goes on to highlight specific concerns related to so-called misinformation on COVID-19 and election integrity issues. But of course, and again, quoting from their threat assessment, key factors contributing to the current heightened threat environment include one, the proliferation of false or misleading narratives, which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. For example, there is widespread online proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19. Grievances associated with these themes inspired violent extremist attacks during 2021. And they don't list those attacks because, you know, there weren't any. Oh, oh, the very violent insurrection. I forgot. Malign foreign powers have and continue to amplify these false or misleading narratives in efforts to damage the United States. One might think that they're talking about George Soros and other global communists buying off our media and tech and university sectors and spreading nonstop propagandistic mis, dis and malinformation across the country about, for instance, the non-existence of overwhelming widespread election fraud or the massive danger that COVID-19 always was, the effectiveness of masks and lockdowns, the safety and effectiveness of vaccines. They would never hurt anybody. Do those efforts to damage the United States count? Is Are, are those the, the foreign actors we're supposed to understand the DHS is talking about? Oh, no, no, no. It's us. It's when we say things before they approve us saying them, because that's what it is. We're not wrong. We haven't been ultimately wrong about any of this stuff. We just find out a year or two later that now it's okay for us to be right. Now the child brains are allowed to know it because they don't think for themselves. So we have to tell them. Now we tell them these obvious truths are actually true. But before that, conspiracy theories. It's not that we're wrong. It's that we're too early and no one wants to know the truth too early. I mean, right? It's not like you're trying to figure out a way to properly navigate your own life or anything. Even more disturbingly, the DHS announcement cites as a potential national security threat, the lifting of COVID restrictions, such as lockdowns. After all, when the cattle are allowed outside of their homes without restriction, there's a greater likelihood of a terrorist attack. Back to the threat assessment. As COVID-19 restrictions continue to decrease nationwide, increased access to commercial and government facilities and the rising number of mass gatherings could provide increased opportunities for individuals looking to commit acts of violence to do so, often with little or no warning. Now, if I didn't know any better and I hadn't seen the actual employment listing they have for crisis actors up on Indeed right now, I'd think that they might be preparing the ground for a false flag. You know, we're opening up so there's a bigger chance of terrorism. Well, who are the terrorists? They've labeled them as people who spread misinformation about COVID and election fraud. Well, according to this, I'm that, and I don't have any interest in violent attacks on anything. In fact, speaking like I do and speaking like all of us do and protesting peacefully like the trucker convoy in Canada, that's exactly what people do when they don't want to resort to violence. 
And what are they trying to do by telling everybody that now that society is back open, even though it's been open in most of the country for the entire time, now's when there's going to be a terrorist attack. So be prepared to see one on television and then be prepared to know exactly who to blame. It's the Patriot Front again. Just the FBI dressed up as like what they imagine white supremacists look like. But then again, they're probably the best to know because the Democrat Communist Party is, of course, the party of slavery, of Jim Crow, of the Confederacy and of utter urban decay. So all of those added up together and adjusting for the effect of the old switcheroo. Well, the Democrat Communist Party is quite clearly the party of white supremacy. I mean, they are the party that is in favor of a collectivist ideology, whereas the Republican Party, or at least MAGA, get rid of the rhinos, is in favor of the human individual and individual liberty. Those things are in opposition. You can't get a racist movement out of people who treasure human individuality. It just doesn't happen. And that's how we can know who the real racists are. If you are preaching a collectivist ideology that divides by category, it's pretty clear who the racists are. Now, I don't know if the FBI could be infiltrated by white supremacist organizations like the Klan. I don't know if police departments would be either, but I've been told that's what's happened throughout history. It's funny when the Democrat Communist Party is honest about itself when they try to project. And for those of you who are relatively new listeners, I think that I put up the video of the audio. Yes, I know it makes no sense, but fine. It exists in video form on Rumble and BitChute, my bit about the switcheroo. But but basically, it's just the commentary on the fact that the Democrat Communist Party has tried since the Civil Rights Act to pull a switcheroo and make the entire country believe it was always the Republicans who were racists. And they've done a pretty admirable job with that because they have the entire global communist infrastructure, the media and everything else supporting their cause. One day they realized, hey, all these people, they don't really like racism, but we can't get rid of the racism. So what should we do? Okay, this is it. This is it. We're going to tell the entire world that they're us and we're them. And as long as the media supports it, they'll believe it. And then we pull the old switcheroo. We pretend that we're actually the people helping ethnic minorities rise up from the bottom, pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And then we can do whatever we want. And they'll look at us as heroes. We can literally give black communities free crack pipes and people will be like, Oh, wow. You guys are like civil rights icons. We could even do it during Black History Month and no one's going to say a thing because they know that we are anti-racist. We only practice the good racism. We divide everybody by race in order to save people. Don't you see the brilliance of the switcheroo? Back to Revolver. It is worth processing this remarkable statement. 
the completely unnecessary COVID lockdown restrictions have become normalized to the point that the Department of Homeland Security considers the removal of such restrictions as a national security threat. This is a development almost too dark for satire. Of course, the COVID restrictions that remain in place, such as vaccine mandates, also pose a national security threat because Americans might dare to object to such measures. Again, from the threat assessment. Meanwhile, COVID-19 mitigation measures, particularly COVID-19 vaccine and mask mandates, have been used by domestic violent extremists to justify violence since 2020 and could continue to inspire these extremists to target government, healthcare, and academic institutions that they associate with those measures. What? What? In Canada right now, they are trying to take down all of this stuff. And how are they doing it? They drove down the street, parked, and occasionally honk. That's it. Violent extremism? These people are insane. Lifting COVID restrictions is a security threat. Keeping restrictions in place is a security threat. Everything is a security threat so long as the American people dare to question their government on matters related to COVID, election integrity, or anything else for that matter. So long as free speech hasn't been entirely crushed online, and as long as free assembly hasn't been entirely suppressed in the outside world, the American people pose a de facto terrorist threat, at least as far as the Department of Homeland Security is concerned. This national security assessment comes just days after the Biden White House called on audio streaming giant Spotify to do more to censor Joe Rogan and others who would dare deviate from the government-approved COVID narrative. That the Biden White House has seemingly enlisted the Department of Homeland Security to amplify its crusade against prohibited speech constitutes a dangerous assault on the First Amendment that would take a separate article to explore in proper depth. For now, we might begin with the question as to why, of all agencies, the Biden regime would have enlisted the Department of Homeland Security. Put another way, what's going on with the DHS? Why does the DHS seem to be playing a special role in the domestic war on terror? That is the repurposing of the American national security apparatus domestically in order to treat American citizens with the wrong political leanings as national security threats. The question concerning the specific role of the DHS as an instrument in the domestic war on terror presents itself all the more forcefully when we recall the special relationship the DHS enjoys with Congressman Benny Thompson, who just happens to be the chairman of the heavily politicized and corrupted January 6th committee. As Revolver reported previously, Thompson is a key component in the establishment DNC's merger with the national security state after 9-11, using the pretext of fake domestic terrorism. As an untouchable incumbent in Mississippi with 28 years in Congress, Thompson was the chair of the Homeland Security Committee from 2007 to 2011 and has been back in charge again since 2019. Essentially, whenever Democrats have a majority in the House, Thompson is put in as the hatchet man to control oversight of the Department of Homeland Security. Benny Thompson scratches the back of an ever-expanding U.S. national security state. In turn, Thompson is rewarded with plush committee chair roles and an expanding DHS turf of his own. Indeed, Thompson was tapped to serve as the permanent chair of the 2020 Democratic National Convention. In the 2020 election, Thompson presided over all official business of the convention that made Joe Biden the Democratic nominee for president. Ironically, in 2004, Thompson was one of only 31 House Democrats who voted to overturn the results of the Bush-Gore election. But today, the vast Department of Homeland Security Agency reports to him.
And that agency now calls anyone who claims fraud in the 2020 election potential terror threats. See how that works? When Benny Thompson does it, it's democracy. When you do it, it's terrorism. In 2007, Thompson's first act as chair of the Homeland Security Committee was to sponsor a bill that granted sweeping new police powers to DHS using the pretext of 9-11. However doubtful the role of the DHS in the war on terror may have been morally and effectually, Benny Thompson has, at any rate, always demonstrated far more passion for the domestic element of DHS's duty to defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And they show a clip from 2013 where Thompson chastised the Republican-led Homeland Security Committee for its insufficient emphasis on homegrown domestic threats. With the appropriately botched withdrawal from Afghanistan all but officially marking an end to the war on terror, Benny Thompson's 2013 vision for the Department of Homeland Security has proved as apt and prescient as ever. Indeed, the Department of Homeland Security now finds itself in the same dilemma as many bloated, failed, and inefficient bureaucracies desperate to justify their budgets. It needs a new purpose. And in the present environment, there are essentially two not mutually exclusive options. Get on board with the new Cold War with China or get on board with the new War on Terror. That is the domestic War on Terror aimed at American citizens whose political positions threaten the corrupt ruling class. To its credit for forward thinking, the Department of Homeland Security was one of the earliest and most aggressive in repurposing itself to prosecute the new domestic war on terror against American citizens with the wrong political leanings. In September of 2020, the Department of Homeland Security took the remarkable and clearly politicized step of identifying so-called white supremacy as the number one terror threat facing America. And this all happened under Donald Trump. This is all not to suggest that Benny Thompson is any kind of mastermind. In all likelihood, Thompson smiles and serves faithfully as a mouthpiece for the security state and is rewarded with honorific but vacuous perks in return. January 6th chair Benny Thompson's DHS connection, along with the recent threat announcement for online misinformation on COVID do, however, gesture towards the DHS is playing an especially important role in the most important and dangerous development in the past several decades, the weaponization of the American national security apparatus against the American people. In order to better understand this new domestic politicized variety of the war on terror, it might behoove us to take a closer look at DHS's special role in this war. And this is precisely what we will do. Stay tuned. We're going on a deep dive. And Revolver does deep investigating journalism better than anyone out there right now. And I'm thinking about this and thinking about the January 6th committee and thinking about the Justice Department labeling parents who want to attend their school board meetings and express their dissent as domestic terrorists. And you got to think, right? The state is telling its own people that they are the biggest threat to the state. Now, that's not possible if the government is actually of, by, and for the people. They are essentially saying that they know that's not true. This is their government, and you, the people, are their subjects. This country was founded on the notion that we are not subjects. And if the people are the greatest threat to the state, then what is the state there to serve? And it turns out they're there to serve the global communist agenda. And they are admitting it when they do stuff like this. They are admitting flat out 
that the people's wants and needs and desires do not matter to them at all. That's not what they're there to do. They are there to implement an agenda that has nothing to do with us. The agenda exists to make us forever subjects, just like in communist China right now. You want the social credit score? Well, they're here to bring it to you. You want centralized digital currency? They're here to bring it to you. Do you want a vaccine passport that also holds all your other medical information? They're here to bring it to you. You want an environmental score included with your social credit score? With all of this, it's all on the device in your hand right now. Soon it will be on a device implanted in you. And we know that's what they're doing. It's not a conspiracy theory anymore. They're literally testing it in other places. What happens at that point? They can regulate and restrict everything you do. What happens when you have your very fancy electric car? All you very cute Tesla drivers. Gosh, everybody is just in awe of your Tesla. Wow. What happens when your social credit score falls too low because you hung out with the wrong people or you visited the wrong websites or you said the wrong things at a dinner party and everybody's phones? Well, they picked it up. What happens if you choose not to get vaccinated when they tell you on their schedule, the lifetime subscription to the experimental gene therapy, whichever one they decide is necessary at that point? What happens if you buy too much meat? Well, they can turn off your electric car. They can make it so you can't drive it. They can turn off your access to money. They can make it so you can't go to certain stores. It is a system where they take 100% control over you, their subjects. Conveniently, they have also stacked $30 trillion of debt onto the American populace. So while you are their subject, you also need to work your entire life to pay back debts that they created for you. And inside that top-down communist system of totalitarian control, the only way you can acquire the things you want and need is through your own complicity. You are forever their subjects. And what do you call subjects who work their entire lives to pay off debts other people created and form virtually no safety or security of their own? Well, you wouldn't be wrong to call them slaves. But hey, what did you think you were signing up for when you ascribed to the collectivist ideology in the first place? Share the show, guys. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. 
Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'mYourModerator.Substack.com, and the merch site is CancelCouture.com. You can also go direct to that at Shop.Spreadshirt.com/Cancel-Couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. as moderator for tonight's broadcast. It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct Shop.Spreadshirt.com slash Cancel-Couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to KO-FI.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!